0: are you, the proud lord said, that I must bow so low? Only a cat of a different coat, that's all the truth I know. And a coat of gold, or a coat of red, a lion still has claws.
1: Hello there, friends, and welcome back to The Longest Night, which is a little show about the HBO series Game of Thrones. My name is Rob. And my name is Lizzie. And together, we are making our way through all 73 episodes of Game of Thrones. Me for what feels like the hundredth time, and Lizzie for the very first time. You can find us on Twitter, we are at LongestNightGOT, that is at LongestNightGOT. So if you want to carry on the discussion over there, then that's when, that's where you got to go and find us. And I'm also one of the moderators on the lovely Narth subreddit, uh, so if you fancy some more in-depth discussion about the show, uh, then by all means, come along. The music that brought us in today was a cover version of The Reigns of Castamere, recorded by The National. And Lizzie, I don't know if you spotted that this song played over the end credits of this episode.
0: Yes, it did. Yeah.
1: Um, so, yeah, we'll get into a little bit of a discussion about that because it gets sung in the episode and then gets sung at the very end of the episode over the end credits. Mm. Um, before we get to the episode, though, um, I just want to ask how you are, because the last time we spoke, you went for a vaccination and then you were turned away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how, uh,
0: how's it gone now? It's mixed bag. I mean, good news is I have had the vaccination. I had the well, AstraZeneca good. vaccine, uh, well, I say yesterday, it would have been the Wednesday of this week of recording. Yeah. Uh The bad news is I've had very bad side effects. So um woke up in the middle of the night last night and about two o'clock in the morning just had terrible shivers, you know, teeth chattering away, feeling sort of you know that feverish feeling you get with flu Mm -hmm. And, and it was like oh god I should have I should have expected this but yeah it led to a very unpleasant sleep and yeah I'm still I'm still exhausted now I don't know if you can hear it in my voice but to be honest I don't think
1: people will and I remember you were saying towards the end of season one that you were particularly overworked and stressed and nobody noticed then either um but if mm-hmm. you're feeling it in yourself then yeah all i can all i can do is just say you know we're all dead sorry and we all hope that by the time that we're recording our season two finale that you feel much much better and that those antibodies are working their way through your system uh yeah, should stress absolutely. i mean obviously lizzie and i should stress it. the side effects are totally normal mm-hmm. and that we would encourage anybody to get vaccinated as soon as they are offered to do so um absolutely i've booked myself in for march 20th and june 5th first and second appointments i'll be getting myself done there good old group six group six gang rise up (laughs) um but yeah so now that we're vaccinating now that the uh, vaccination chat is out of the way i think we'll press on to an episode that i know so many people will be eager for us to talk about This week, we are going to be discussing Season 2, Episode 9 of Game of Thrones, which is entitled Blackwater. It was written by the author of the A Song of Ice and Fire series, George R.R. R. Martin, and it was directed by Neil Marshall. It was first broadcast on May 27th, 2012 to an audience of 3.38 million people, which is a big dip from last week's figures, but was apparently caused by it being Memorial Day weekend. In the US at this point. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you will notice, Lizzie, as we go on through the first uh, six seasons, which all aired between sort of March, May, June of each year, um, mm. that episode five or six, or whichever episode tends to fall on Memorial Day, takes a dip in viewership figures, only by about six or seven hundred thousand, but it just, there's just a little dip every single time. Um, but on the other side of this, is that this is the first episode of Game of Thrones to be viewed by over 1 million people in the UK. Oh, well, there you go. The 9pm Monday um, broadcast instead of 2am on, uh, on the Monday morning, which I know that quite a lot of people who watch the episodes live used to stay up late instead of waiting until the Monday night. Um, so... I want your general thoughts on what those one million British people uh, laid witness to and what those people who were celebrating Memorial Day weekend in 2012 missed <laughs> first time well, round.
0: I mean, I'm sure that after a heady bank holiday weekend of drinking and debauchery, they wanted to watch, you know, a war taking place and lots of people succumbing to a fiery death. I'm sure. What else? What, what, else? what better way to end a, a glorious bank holiday weekend in May? Um,
1: so yeah, what do you think about the episode, Lizzie? Your first, first viewing of it?
0: Yeah, it's a very good episode. It's, I'd say, quite comfortably the best episode of season two so far. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, it's also, I think, the first episode where we're only in one location. It's a, It feels like the closest thing we get to, like, a bottle episode in the Game of Thrones universe.
1: It is. Yeah, it is the first episode to only take place in one location, um but i yeah i just think you know it, and it's also the first time that we've seen a battle there's been so many references to battles and we've always yeah. gone around the battles but what did you yeah, make of your first experience with um a game of Thrones battle
0: well it's it's nice that they've had the budget bumped up to be able to do that it's not just mm. I, I think it, i'm sort of giggling to myself trying to imagine how they would have got around this in season one yeah i don't think i don't <laughs> think they could have done it You'd have to have I don't know Tyrion knocked out again or something. Well, this
1: is the this is an episode that um, it had two different directors and the first director has never really been named because um, okay. basically the original plan for the episode was a little bit beyond what you actually end up seeing. But Neil Marshall was brought in at quite a a late date because they were planning the episode and they were coming up with all the things that wanted to be in the episode, and the director that they initially had was telling them, no, you have to cut this out. No, you're going to have to cut this out. You're going to have to cut this out. We don't have the budget to do this. We don't have the budget to do that. And at this point, David Benioff and Dan Weiss are kind of fighting tooth and nail to get everything in and then eventually neil marshall comes on board and all the things that were initially taken out he's going no you can keep that in i I found a way to do this within the budget no it's fine yeah we can do this and we can do this and we can do this and all of these things started getting added back in and we never know what was missing and what wasn't missing um that's really interesting but the version of it that we have um i think this is the best episode of the show so far one of my all-time favorite episodes not just of the show but of television ever Uh, Mm. manages to use the way that battles lend themselves really organically to cinematic interpretation in order to display like the true emotional impact of war and the actors of this battle especially inside the walls of king's landing are shown to be uh, like victims and perpetrators of violence at the same time and you have good people carrying out what are arguably acts of tyranny and terrible things and you have people that we've been conditioned to dislike living in fear of like being raped and murdered and you sympathize Mm. with them. And in the sight of all this blood and fire, even some of like the hardest men, at least in in terms of their exterior, some of the hardest men in the show suddenly (laughs) just snap and they crack. And the explosion on the Blackwater is something I'll get into more later, but rest assured, um, like, it is perhaps the most important moment of my relationship with Game of Thrones, apart from being given the Blu-rays in the first place. Yeah. Um, so I've structured this episode a little differently, and it was a little bit of a tough task to work mm. out how to organise this episode. But what I've done is I've split it into four parts, and I've okay. done it chronologically. Because uh, I was wondering, should I divide it by stuff that happens in the Red Keep and then stuff that happens on the battlefield? But then I thought, no, because the if, if we were to talk about all of the incidents inside the Red Keep and inside the castle, you would have to talk about the very end of the episode before you even start to discuss... Matters on the battlefield because you would have to talk about Cersei and Tommen in the throne room yeah, before you yeah, even true. mention that Stannis's ships get destroyed. And so it's it was a bit of a juggling act. So what I've done is I've done a part one, and then there's a two, th- part two, three, and four. And so we're, but basically, what we're going to do is I'm going to read out the scenes as I normally do in a general description of the plot. And we'll just talk about those scenes in part one, then the scenes in part two, and so on and so forth.
0: I've always hated the bells. They ring for horror. A dead king, a city under siege. A wedding. Exactly. Podrick, is that it? Is that it? Nice touch. As if you don't know the name of every boy in town. I'm not entirely sure what you're suggesting. I'm entirely sure you're entirely sure what I'm suggesting.
1: In part one of the episode, Stannis' fleet approaches King's Landing at night. His soldiers are waiting below deck and they're shivering and frightened, and even some of them are throwing up out of fear. Uh, Davos and his son Mathos discuss a few things about the battle that they're heading towards. In King's Landing, Tyrion is lying awake in bed with Shay. Cersei has ordered Maester Pycelle to provide her with uh, Essence of Nightshade, or whatever it's called. Uh, to provi- mm. It's basically a poison that should the city fall, uh, she'll commit suicide rather yeah. than be tortured or killed by Stannis' men. In a tavern, Bronn sings with some Lannister soldiers and has a brief confrontation with the Hound, but the confrontation is stopped dead in its tracks by the sound of bells calling a soldier's to the walls, and while the bells ring, Varys visits Tyrion in his chambers and remarks that he's always hated bells, that they ring for horror. (laughs) A dead king, a city under siege, and and hearing the
0: bells...
1: (laughs) Yes, and weddings, yes. And hearing the bells, Mathos orders the ship's drummers to play, and to rouse the men, and to get them all eager and ready for battle. So, in the calm before the storm, I think we'll call this section... Um, I am a huge, huge fan of how one of the real strengths of this episode is that it spends more time with the people who won't be on the battlefield than it does watching people swing swords around, and so you spend a lot of this episode learning from the perspectives of people like Varys and Shay, yeah, and Cersei and Maester Pycelle and all these people who've been through sieges before and know what it entails and people who've never been through sieges before and have no idea what they're in for, but they're frightened. And there's just this eeriness and it's something that reminded me of the start of episode five before Renly is stabbed, where there's just this feeling of like this wind and whatever's coming on the wind is threatening
0: yeah um
1: but what notes do you have about part one everything up to the point where the drummers start playing
0: (laughs) well yeah i mean like you say it's a kind of calm before the storm but there's this as you mentioned this looming dread that just encases everything and as you know even calling it a calm before the storm feels a bit like is it? Because you've, you've got Cersei considering just committing suicide rather than being captured. You've got Tyrion and Shae talking as if they're never going to see each other again. And it's a very real possibility that they might not. Mm. I think there's, there's this sense in, in King's Landing especially that they, you know, it's very likely that they might not win. And that Stannis could, could take over the city by you know, by the end of that day.
1: Can I ask, in this moment, before hmm. the battle actually starts, who yeah. did you, if you did, want anybody to win? Did, did you want anybody, any particular side to emerge as the
0: victor in this? Um, I don't know. I guess maybe the Lannisters, just because I didn't want anything to happen to, like, Sansa and Tyrion. There's nobody really, other than maybe Davos in Stannis' camp that I can say that I'm supportive of, hmm. particularly not Stannis.
1: No, I think there is, a, there is though, I think the one thing that Stannis do, does have on his side with, shall we say, the neutral viewer, is that he's hmm. not Joffrey.
0: Yeah, it's true, but he's also not Renly.
1: Exactly, yes. Um, And it's a wonderful moral quandary that you're presented with at the start of the episode, I think. Mm. And there is an element of... Like you say, there is this element of dread that it's two sides that... Because Stannis isn't necessarily the enemy either. I mean, I think that the one... Having watched this season through again, I think the one thing that season two has fumbled ever so slightly is Stannis' introduction to the show. Yeah, Because I'm not 100% sure that they've quite carried over any sympathies that you're supposed to have for him. It all seems like he's fallen prey to religious dogma. And the, the person in his storyline that you're supposed to sympathize with the most is just Davos. But yeah. when he's basically taken out of it in the first wave of the battle, after that, it does... Become less of a. It becomes more good versus evil. It's not good versus evil. No, it's no, far from it. But it becomes more good versus evil once somebody like Davos isn't involved. And I think that in what the first half of that episode does well is that there's a conversation that Davos and Mathos have where Mathos is talking about the the residents of King's Landing as if they'd be grateful to be liberated and Davos is sort of saying that they don't see you as a liberator, they see you as an enemy, like that is what you are to them and yeah. so you know Davos plays the role of the audience I think For, around Stannis this season I feel like Davos has very much played the role of the audience, he's tried to you know, to make sure that he's not as influenced by the Red Woman or as, uh, you know, and he's kind of losing it a little bit as his son disappears deeper into this kind of religious propaganda as well. Mm. And now on the eve of battle, he's trying to talk his son down a little bit and understand that they are just simple actors in a, in a larger war rather than the winners. Because as soon as Stannis turns up in King's Landing, it's, well if Stannis were to win the battle, what happens then? It's not just everything's fine, and I think Davos is one of the few people on those ships who really understands that.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's true. You wouldn't think, obviously we can't read his brain, but you wouldn't think Davos would be the sort of person who would want to lead forces into King's Landing to um, rape and pillage more on later, but it it's... <sighs> you want to believe he has the best intentions, but as you say, that as much as you can see yourself as a liberator, you are still kind of kicking doors down and taking what's not rightfully yours, depending on who you ask. Mm. And it's something that uh,
1: Mathos actually mentions to Davos as well, is that Davos grew up in King's Landing. Mm. On those streets where we've had the riots this season and we've had the demon monkey speech earlier this season. Yeah. That is where Davos grew up and so to return as a as an invader is something I think that he understands and it's difficult for him to come to terms with that. Mm. Um, I want to talk to you though because um, I know that you mentioned in the aftermath of the episode the one scene that we do get in the tavern, in the bar
0: because
1: mm. we open up um, that it's not Too important, really, but it's just a nice little bit of world-building that they are singing uh, the Lannister song, which is the Reigns of Castamere. Um, It gets a little bit more explained uh, next season about the history of where the song came from. Um, Its uh, melody was created by uh, Rami Javadi, who writes and composes the music for the TV show, Uh, but the words come from books and it's basically just an old tale about how the Lannisters, it's it's a long time ago, uh, the Lannisters beat a particular house in a war and so that's just the song that they adopted as their anthem. Mm. It's a really beautiful melody um, but once they're done singing, um, I know that you came to me about a particular part of the scene that I think is the one little mark against this sh- episode.
0: Yeah. Um this is something my friend Layla sent me. Um a quote from um well from an interview with Neil Marshall that I think was in Empire from a podcast around the time of the episode. Hmm. And he he basically said that he didn't feel the scene required full frontal nudity from from the actress and he felt that it was a distraction and requested he take it out But he lost the disagreement and it was kept in because one of the producers had overruled his request, saying that, quote, everyone else in the series represents the drama side. I represent the pervert side of the audience. And I'm saying I want full frontal nudity in the scenes. To which, you know, Neil Marshall, unsurprisingly, describes this as pretty surreal. And it is. It's it's one of those things that... You wonder had this been made now, and there's a there's a couple of instances of this I'll get to later on as well. It's one of those, like, would would this have been the case if this was made in twenty twenty one? I don't think it would. Well, quite
1: often Game of Thrones, especially in the first few seasons of the show. Hmm it did find itself at the center of conversations where it didn't quite balance sexual exploitation and sexual violence. Mm. And it often, you know, went in with the best of intentions, but maybe got things wrong. And I, I, I mean, I wonder, that producer remains unnamed, but I imagine it's an HBO exec wandering around set Yeah, saying things like that because it feels like people who are prominent and people who are named, Mm. even in 2012, may not have been so bold. And that's not to forgive them for anything because we have seen during this season that it has gone over the top Mm. with regards to how it depicts sexual violence. And I think that, to be honest, what helps the show in my eyes, get away with it, and especially some of its more high-profile incidents, is that it rarely uses it. All I will say is that when it does use uh, nudity and uh, sexual violence for shock value, it's always very obvious Mm. because most of the time I think they deal with it very well, especially as the show um grows up and as it goes along and the writers and the producers and stuff start listening to members of the public who are way more qualified to talk about these kinds of things and there is a noticeable difference in later seasons i think um with this kind of stuff but we are still in that era of the show where it's like if we can have boobs in a scene we'll just put boobs in a scene
0: yeah it, that's the thing though the news to see isn't balanced it's not like you see the men parading around naked but the women parading around naked it's something you get in more episodes than not it feels like
1: yeah um and <laughs> that's something um it's kind of it's not really a spoiler to say that they do um address that criticism rather specifically in a later season but um oh, right. okay we'll, we'll talk about that when it happens um but I mean, so far, yeah, the only male nudity I can think of that we've had is Hodor and Theon.
0: Yeah, I was going to say. But um, the
1: Hodor thing wasn't played in the same way that this particular scene is played. Mm. Um, And yeah, I just think that one mark against this episode, and it's not enough for me to think that it's not perfect. It's just like something Mm. I wish maybe wasn't there, but... Yeah, and I think that, you know, I think the scene itself, having the women around and maybe even, like, having them, I don't know, like, slightly new to, like, depict certain behaviours, because, you know, there is a massive difference between depiction and endorsement, but this feels like the scene in the earlier episode that we've had this season with the Scepter and the two sex workers and Joffrey. It just feels like, yeah, like, we get the point, but is it 100% necessary and
0: yeah yeah no it's like is it gratuitous which it is it doesn't the scene, it doesn't add anything to the scene so hmm. why is it there one thing i will say is that
1: it was something that i said to you in a message which is that game of thrones is in terms of this stuff uh, in terms of how sexual violence is depicted on screen and how victims of sexual abuse are given representation on screen and how uh the female body is treated i think that it is the last of a certain era and the first of a new era because as the conversation around these kinds of topics has gotten so loud game of thrones went alongside it Mm. and game of thrones reflects it's sort of something i said about um i was speaking with sam about the way that it's always sunny in philadelphia developed into a more mature and less of an edgelord kind of show. And this is very... Game of Thrones has a very similar arc, I think, and it's something that will get much better. It's not a problem that persists through the whole show. I think at least by season six, there are acknowledgements in the script that they've made mistakes in the past, (laughs) and the... There are certain elements of later seasons where they get slightly meta. They do allow themselves to do that, and <laughs> so yeah, I think there will be um, there will be improvements along the way, and there will
0: be reflections. Yeah, yeah that's that's fine. I think yeah. it's fine to grow as a show, and yeah, you, it's not the sort of thing that would completely ruin your viewing experience. It's just a a slightly odd decision. The king has asked you a question. Lancel, tell the Hound to tell the king that the Hand is extremely busy. The Hand of the King would like me to tell you to tell the king... If that... I
1: tell the Hound to cut you in half, you'll do it without a second
0: thought. That would make me the quarterman. It just doesn't have the same ring to it. So,
1: in part two of the episode, uh, in the throne room, Sansa and Shay watch Tyrion and Bronn uh, go off to fight. Uh, they then encounter Joffrey, who's on his way to the battlefield, and he orders Sansa to kiss his sword heart eater he's called it and he remarks that rob will be his next victim joffrey and Tyrion are then shown to be standing atop the mud gate while Mm. cersei sansa and shay are holed up in the red keep with the other women and handmaidens davos begins to wonder though why no lannister ships have come to meet them and then he sees one lone ship which Mm -hmm. is pouring wildfire into the water as it drifts out into the middle of stannis's fleet and Tyrion sends a signal to Bronn by throwing a flaming torch over the walls, and Bronn fires a flaming arrow into the sky. And before Davos can warn Mathos of what's about to happen, the arrow plunges into the water and ignites the wildfire, and that starts a chain reaction that causes an explosion, a massive explosion that Mm. completely destroys a good portion of Stannis' fleet, kills Mathos and several others instantly and throws Davos into the water and cuts him out of the battle. So, yeah, I I am very tempted to jump in and talk straight away about the explosion, but um, do you have any notes about the scene with uh, Joffrey and uh, Sansa in the throne room?
0: There is... um, You do see Sansa getting at least some kind of barbed in, doesn't she? She remarks to... To say something like, Joffrey won't die, the bad ones never do.
1: Yeah, then that really captures a feeling that you definitely have about Game of Thrones itself, where you just sort of feel like the villains are inevitable. Nothing mm. will ever destroy them. It's just like, Joffrey will always come back. Joffrey will always win. Why does he always win? Why did they win in season one? Why doesn't he yeah. die in this episode? Like, why doesn't he get cut down? He always comes back. And I think that yeah, I mean Shay obviously tells her to be careful, but just the scene where he's making her kiss the sword and
0: the yeah, she's she's clearly just resigned to this bullshit. It's like, well, I'm I'm stuck here now, and there's there's in her mind there's no way that anything is gonna come of this. It's not like if if even if Stannis did win, what's in it for her? She's just gonna well, presumably become abused and told up again at best.
1: Yeah, I think the hope for Sansa, if Stannis had won this, is that he would have got to her first and would have said, look, she's Ned Stark's daughter, Ned Stark supported my claim. Hmm. We'll see that she's, you know, she's escorted home to Winterfell. But
0: that's only if Stannis reaches her first. Just as an audience member, like, he's never mentioned this. So I doubt he. It, it might not even be in the back of his mind
1: no and i think that as much as stannis does you know lead his men over the wall it doesn't mean that he'd get to the red keep first and i would only yeah worry about the situation of every woman who's in that room oh yeah we'll
0: get to that in a bit of course yeah yeah that's more of a part three thing Mm. Well, just before that, there was a little bit of foreshadowing in when Joffrey and Tyrion were having this conversation. Um, You see a man walk past the Hound with a flame and he sort of recoils a bit and he Mm. looks quite perturbed. It's one of those, I re-watched it earlier and I just picked up on that. It's like, oh, I Mm. didn't notice that first time around. But it's it's quite... Yeah, it's quite good that they put that in.
1: Yeah, um, the explosion on The Blackwater. Uh, I just want to know how you were feeling when that happened.
0: (laughs) It's it's incredible, isn't it? Um, Not just the visuals of the explosion, but also a lot of really fantastic wordless acting, particularly from Peter Dinklage in this.
1: Yeah, I think that this is something that Game of Thrones always gets really right throughout Mm. the show, which is that they'll give you... A massive spectacle. Yeah. And just at the moment where you think, Oh, they're gonna have their cake and eat it here, they just bring you back down to earth. And in yes. this moment, your eyes are transfixed upon this this image that I've never seen before. Green fire. Yeah, yeah. And you think, Wow, that's amazing. And then You're forced to watch as Tyrion is immediately Mm. horrified at his own actions. He can hear people screaming, and he can hear the people on fire, and this is what I mean about the episode forcing you to understand people doing awful things in the sight of an enemy, and having to do terrible things just to defend themselves and just to get through the night. Morally very questionable things. It's characters being presented with the trolley problem over and over and over and over again. And I think that as much as I would disagree with people who say that Game of Thrones is a show about philosophy, Mm. it does have a philosophy in it. There are... A lot of, as I was saying at the start of this episode, a lot of moral quandaries that the characters get presented with that yeah. are now unavoidable.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's something with, we've explored even in this season with um, Rob and Talitha. In yes. That you, might, you might kill the enemy, but you've killed tens of thousands of innocent people along with it. and Who may you...
1: well have been on your side in a different life.
0: Yeah, and it's like, can you really take any pleasure in that? Exactly, which is, I think, what this episode
1: is built on. It's about the necessary sacrifice that goes Mm. on underneath the battle that we hear about. And it's where George R. R. Martin's obsession with history comes in rather Mm. than, um, you know, the facts on paper. It's about digging under the facts on paper. And it would be very easy to just focus on the battle itself and stick out there and stay out there. But it's... Because even in, um, like, I mean, I love the Lord of the Rings movies, but so little of the Lord of the Rings movies are, well, the theatrical versions anyway, afford time to the people not on the battlefield. There are a few shots of women and children hiding in caves, and there Mm. are little subplots that go on in the castle, um, but it's mainly the male stewards and the governor if you will of the um the city that's under siege and with with this we spend all this time with Cersei and Sansa talking through what will happen if the city should ever fall and what's going to happen to them and then in the moment Tyrion's wildfire plan that he's been building up for four or five episodes at a time finally gets to see it in action, and all it does is horrify him. Yeah, yeah, he can't even feel any satisfaction from it, it's all just a necessary evil. And yeah, even Bronn as well, like, I don't think Bronn fully appreciated until it happened the scale of death no. that was because this is something that haunts Game of Thrones. Death haunts Game of Thrones in ways that I don't think quite a lot of people ever really gave it credit for. Mm. Um, And it's something that, it's why Ned Stark is not still alive in the show, but he is, you know, his character still, his ghost still lives and breathes through so many people. And it's about the long-lasting effects of uh, trauma that death can bring to people. And I think that Blackwater was even though no major characters were lost in the battle you could say mathos i guess
0: um well possibly davos as well
1: and yeah possibly davos as well is that but even then then you know they're not major major characters and no no but i think what it really does is a fantastic job of sticking with the people on the ground
0: mm.
1: and you don't you're not allowed to simply watch the green fire and go wow because as much as you get that feeling and that feeling sticks the feeling that you really get is jesus this is horrible imagine what it must be like to burn alive with this fire that you can't escape from you can't just jump in the water because the water's full of it as well yeah. And it's so highly flammable with it, like, it just... It, it seems to just be getting everywhere. It seems to be, like, multiplying every time somebody tries to shake off a bit of them that's on fire.
0: Oh, God, yeah, it's horrifying. And you, you kind of cut to the only two people who were smiling at the prospect are Joffrey and the Pyromancer. <laughs> yeah! It's like, fucking hell, if they're pleased with this outcome, then... It's not its not something you want to rewatch just because of how... I feel like another show would have had this explosion as the ending, as the big set piece, and then the music kicks in. Whereas I know this what is, you mean. It's like slap bang in the middle of the episode, and you're you you can only take in the the sight of the explosion for a couple of seconds at a time because it's cutting between the reactions of the horrified people who have been the instigators of it, and also those who have. Had to bear the consequences hmm and I have to say
1: that this was the moment for me that secured how I felt about Game of Thrones because when I started watching it in 2015 uh, blitz through the first uh, season Hmm. and you know I was shocked about Ned dying but I kind of knew about it because I had a friend who watched it from the start and so I you know I knew what was coming um, in a way Uh, with Ned Stark going, but with this, I had no idea. And Game of Thrones had kind of been sold to me as this kind of show. Mm. The kind of show that Blackwater turns it into. And I think this is a massive turning point for the show in what it starts to prioritise and what it starts to be very good at and what it starts to get even better at. And this is the earliest example of something that Game of Thrones goes on to specialise in. But this was the moment where I realised that this was more than any other TV show had ever given me, ever. Mm. Like, it just, I didn't know I could feel the way that this episode initially made me feel from pictures and sounds coming out of a screen. Like, I just, I had no idea that I could feel this way, and when that fire goes up, and it's like, Jesus. And... Yeah. If, if, if for all that um, it has... um its detractors now towards the end. The one thing that I don't think anybody could ever question Game of Thrones' quality on and handling of is that it constantly, from this point, endeavors to push back the boundaries of what is possible on TV. What yeah. can you show on the small screen? Th- this was the first ever television show to be broadcast live in an IMAX theatre. In, oh, wow. Um, in really? season four. Yeah, it was broadcast live in an IMAX theatre, a couple of episodes in season four. And oh, that sounds amazing. Yes, it does sound amazing. And there are certain episodes that I wish will would be able to be seen in a cinema screen in the future. Yeah. Because that's what they were made for. And to have... I think that this is... Because I think people often get lost in... And they when they blur the lines between... What is TV and what is cinema? They often put TV down and hmm. say that TV is capable of less than cinema. And I think Game of Thrones is a fantastic example of a TV show which is cap- which is as capable of producing television that is just as capable as cinema. And I think this is the earliest example of it in the show where a TV production... This is a, a TV production, this episode... Yes. And this is what TV can do if you give it the money and you give it the license to do what it wants to do. And I think that if this was a film, Hollywood came to George R.R. Martin several times and he always said, no. He mm. says, if I'm ever going to let this be anything on screen, it has to be a TV show because you have to give it the space. And
0: yeah, yeah.
1: This is about as full a potential I think as has been realized so far in terms of capturing the vision of what's in the books and turning it and putting it on screen and I think that the blast and the explosion is is the big the big turning point there are things that they did have to leave out um, there's a a plot like part of Tyrion's plot also involves a massive chain that gets like pulled across the breadth of Blackwater Bay and they had to kind of leave that out and um, Right, like the wildfire explosion in the north it's like it's the epicentre of the episode and it's the bit from the episode that everybody remembers and it manages to bring so many things together in one moment and then when the fire dies down all those threads that it's brought together suddenly spread apart again and you said that you uh, probably couldn't rewatch it I watch it at least two times a year (laughs) <laughs> just individually uh oh yeah fantastic bit of tv praying to the gods to have mercy on us all the gods have no mercy that's why they're gods my father told me that when he caught me praying my mother had just died you see i didn't really understand the concept of death the finality of it i thought that if i prayed very very hard the gods would return my mother to me I was four.
0: Your father doesn't believe in the gods. He believes in them, he just doesn't like
1: them very much. So, part three, and I think this is where we can get on to talking about who I think is the MVP of the episode. Um, Cersei begins to ply Sansa with wine. Uh, she rambles barely coherently about several things, like what happens when a city falls, how Sansa should expect Joffrey to behave as her king and husband. And she begins to inquire about Shay's origins a little bit. Uh, Back on the battlefield, the surviving members of Stannis' army have reached the the shore and the city walls. They're met with a volley of arrows, and the Hound leads a band of soldiers to challenge them. But he struggles, as you said, with the sight of fire, Mm. and he just wanders back into the castle. And as well as that, Lancel Lannister is hit by an arrow and has to retreat into the Red Keep, where he is instructed by Cersei to remove Joffrey from the battlefield. Um, and just before Joffrey returns to the Red Keep, he orders the Hound to rejoin the battle. But the only response that he gets is, fuck the Guard, fuck the city, fuck mm-hmm. the king. Yep. And the Hound leaves the battlefield completely and heads back towards the Red Keep. So my MVP of this episode is Lena Headey, she is a star in oh this episode, yeah. an absolute star. I mean, she does not need my approval, but this so far, this is the best individual acted performance out of any episode of the show so far.
0: Yeah, she's, it's this very real portrayal of being sort of drunken and nihilistic. That you don't often see. You're like I feel like portrayals of drunkenness often devolve into like falling all over the place and telling people you love them and breaking down crying. This is mm-hmm. a very real. Like she's, y- you know, she. It's like she's accepted the inevitability of the city falling, and her only way of coping is to lash out at those around her as if like to blame them for failing to protect her and Joffrey and the Lannister kingdom.
1: Yeah, and I think wrapped up in all that is the the woman that she has re- been raised and abused to be. Mm. She is a product, Cersei is a product of everything that has happened to her. Yeah, And more so than most people, I think. I mean, everybody's a product of what's happened to them, but I think Cersei, more so than ever, really lets all that go and once the uh once that old seal is broken and once her mouth is unzipped she doesn't stop in this episode and
0: no no she
1: tells sansa the reality of what's going to happen and it's very irresponsible but she's drunk out of her mind and predicting that she'll be raped and murdered within the next 12 hours like where does your mind go yeah in those kinds of moments and I, it's such it is a more low key aspect of the episode but Cersei reveals elements of herself in this episode that I don't think she has so far. She's revealed them in little ways, but this is when it all comes spilling out, and this front that Cersei puts on all falls away with the help of a little liquor. And once, as I said, once that mouth is unzipped, she just goes and goes and goes, and the way that Lena Headey balances all this is just so, so exquisite. I find it so rewarding to go back and watch this episode and just watch her deliver lines like it was expected of me and there's all the stuff about the way that she talks to Sansa about weaponizing sex against men and the way that she's so bitter Mm. and so experienced. It's like she's playing somebody who's 40 years older than she is. Mm. who has seen everything that there is to see and has been left, as you say, very nihilistic and very bitter about it. And I could watch Lena Headey for days anyway, but in this episode in particular, um, this is... I think she brings it all together. I think she captures the episode's themes about how people can be broken by... Uh, primary socialisation, and they mm. can be broken by war, and they can be just—they can hold it all together until somebody just allows the tap to run, and then once it runs, it just gushes out.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> and sh- Sansa should...
1: bears the brunt of all this.
0: <laughs> I mean, I—I I feel I should mention um, she is not the good guy in this episode. Um, oh God, we- no. Before we talk about this amazing performance, and it is, I don't want to give the impression that we're saying, oh, yeah, Cersei's great in this episode. She's, you know, great crack. Um, she's sort of threatening Santa with this. I'm sure she's dealing with quite a lot of trauma. It feels... What she's saying feels familiar to her, almost as if she's experienced it herself. But it's not an excuse to... Um, you know, bully these young women.
1: Totally. she And that's another thing as well. It's another level of her performance as well, and another level, is that she adds to Cersei this sense that Cersei's kind of getting off on all this as well. Mm. She's enjoying this, like, this power. And she is essentially just going at Sansa about this. And There's a lot of pain and cynicism, but there's an element of comedy to it as well, the way that she is just this, like... She has lost control. She's kind of taken leave of her senses, Cersei. Mm. And I think that it's just her Lena Hiddy's performance is just imbued with all of this. And Sansa, poor old Sophie Turner, perfect innocent Sansa, praying and singing and helping them through, helping all the other women through it, is know. Um, given responsibility far beyond her years.
0: Yeah in this
1: episode. Um, But yeah, the stuff in the Red Keep is magical. And for me, and the stuff away from the battle in most episodes or films of fantasy and stuff, you know, where they they cut away from the battle and you have a a quiet scene. It's kind of like, can Mm. we get back to, let me, (laughs) watch men hit each other with swords, can we? But when I'm out on the battlefield, I'm just like, let me get back to the Red Keep. I want to see how further down this spiral of descent Cersei has gone. Is she, you know, is she shouting at people now? Is she throwing glasses at people? I want to know. Like, I, I want to know. I want to check back in. I want the goss. Well, I want I, this. We, and... we get
0: we get close to that. She um she hits Lancel towards the end. Yes, yeah, she does. <laughs> which I sense is that it's um it's a sort of fatalism brewing inside of her, and it just manifests itself in anger and frustration. And she's like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm I'm done with you. I'm going to the throne with Tom and, and well, we'll come to it, but she nearly mm. does she nearly does take the poison. Nearly does the
1: unthinkable, yes. Um another character though who is broken by everything that's happening around them is the Hound.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um so fuck the King's Guard, fuck the City, fuck the King is like I think if you were to ask Game of Thrones fans their ten favourite quotes from the show, this would mm. comfortably nestle in the top ten. Oh, I love it. This is a real fan favourite, this one. Um, It's an amazing moment, and I think it... The Hound's performance and Rory McCann as the Hound, I think we've seen it happening since the end of season one, which is that he is not born to be a killing machine. He's been raised to be a killing machine. It's not Mm. been his fault, and he is where he is because of circumstance, and he is as much of a product of everything that's happened to him as Cersei is, and... This is again. This is the moment where, like Cersei, he just snaps. But yeah. he has a very at that moment where he sees the fire and, uh, but that guy burning to death, and Bronn has to kill him. Um, and he just that is the moment where he snaps, and it's like he has a thousand yard stare, and he just wanders back into the castle, back beyond the walls makes some kind of potentially treasonous comment to Joffrey but Joffrey's far too scared in this episode to do anything about that
0: mm.
1: and heads all the way back into the castle and then plans to leave King's Landing and take Sansa with him and yes. that is the sign of someone who is just well is uh, so many old fears and old traumas have been awakened in him mm. in this episode and that's the Well, for me, it's the sight of someone going through an episode of post-traumatic stress.
0: Yeah, very much so.
1: Yeah. Uh, What notes have you got about the Hound?
0: Um, Well, I I messaged you after the episode. Um, There was a small complaint I had about a lot of flippant comments about rape in this episode. Mm -hmm. Which I suppose is understandable in the context, but... It's another one of those things, like, if this episode were made now, would this be the case? I don't think it would, but again, moving on. Um, Well, I think with the Hound's one... Yeah. um, Well, this is what I was going to say. It's like the... line everyone knows. Yeah, the line about dead corpses, which probably made me wince the most at first, but you mentioned to me, given the events of the episode and what we know about the Hound in this episode, it perhaps makes more sense to consider this comment as Sandor's way of concealing his inner anxiety about the battle and and the fire. And it's just, it's his last gasp attempt at, okay, come on, I've got to see myself through this, even though I am scared to death. And it's this this primal fear. And this is all he has, really, this comment.
1: For me, in this episode, I think you are totally right, and I totally agree uh, that it's a it's a show. It's all for show. But I think in this episode, this is the episode where he stops being the hound yeah. and suddenly snaps into being Sandor Clegane. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I think that it's a a major major moment for him in this episode, um, and that I think there is a hound before this episode and a hound afterwards. Or Mm. rather, there's a Hound before this episode and a Sandor afterwards. Um, But, you know, questions will be answered at a later date on that one. But Mm. um, just, yeah, an amazing, amazing performance. I think that this episode is built around Tyrion, the Hound, and Cersei. And Cersei and the Hound probably take it from Tyrion in terms of who's MVP. But, as we'll get to in part four, Tyrion has his own final moment of uh, um, potentially episode stealing one.
0: There's just one more comment I have on that. I'm, I'm sorry, I'll keep this brief. Yeah. But um, it's even just a line, when um, when the hound goes back and they have that conversation between him and Joffrey, Joffrey says, get back out there, dog. And it's like... Yes. As much, I know his nickname is a hound, but imagine just being called dog. I think it's sort of being put in your place and him realising that I'm, you know, I'm not part of this family. I'm just... I'm a pawn in their game. Father, the battle is over. We have won.
1: So, part four, Stannis' men have climbed the walls and now look to be winning the battle. Uh, Cersei leaves the Red Keep with Tommen, and Shay tells Sansa to return to her bedroom, where she finds the Hound. And he offers to take her north to Winterfell, but Sansa turns his offer down. Uh, Tyrion calls the Lannister army forward, though, with a rousing speech, and they attack Stannis' men from behind. And they land a minor victory, only for another group of enemy soldiers to <laughs> charge in. And during the chaos, Sir Mandon Moore, who was briefly mentioned in the episode last week, who fetched Roz after she was beaten up, uh, he's one of the King's Guards to Joffrey, slices Tyrion's face and attempts to finish him off. But Podrick manages to stab him through the head from behind with a big spear. And as Tyrion slips out of consciousness, a cavalry sweeps across the battlefield and forces Stannis's men to retreat. Um, and with Cersei about to drink the the poison that Maester Pycelle gave her, it is revealed that the cavalry was a combined force of Lannister and Tyrell soldiers that won the battle and defended the city, and Tywin enters and declares this news to Cersei, who drops the poison to the floor Um, Before we start uh, part four I did want to ask Before I forget When did it dawn on you That we weren't leaving King's Landing in this episode?
0: Um, I don't know if it did at any point At no point was I thinking When are they going to check in With Daenerys (laughs) at (laughs) the When when are they just going to have Like a a random two minute conversation Between her and Jorah? You're so engrossed in this It doesn't it doesn't really occur to you
1: excellent okay wonderful that's yeah no that's <laughs> awesome that is proof of this episode's real strengths that mm. it can completely break form it can break from the soap opera elements of the show where it you know it's lots of you know um separate plot lines in loads of different locations yeah and it can keep you here for an hour and sustain you um another episode stealing moment potentially is Tyrion's big speech i think that those are brave men out there, let's go kill them, is just the episode in a nutshell. I think that it's ultimately not a, like you say, not a good versus evil battle. It's just people in a situation because they feel they have to be. And Tyrion understands this and he says, you know, don't fight for kings, don't fight for glory, don't fight for riches, you'll never get any, but do fight for the fact that if you don't win, you're going to die yeah, it's and it's are gonna be them. destroyed. Yeah, it very much us or them, and he, you know, it's yeah, an amazing a moment where he takes it upon himself, and he quietly says to himself, "I will lead." It's great judgment from Peter Dinklage to say, "I will lead the attack," and then go, "I'll lead the attack," and he kind of says it to himself first, as if he's gene himself up. And hmm. yeah, what did you make of Tyrion's little speech? I say little big speech.
0: And there's that moment where he says, "I'll lead the attack," and, and all the soldiers are just like, Ugh not not really on board with that but it's yeah it's fan- another fantastic moment from peter dinklage in this where he manages in this couple of seconds to sort of rouse them out of this malaise and and yeah if anybody does have an alternative plan you know another way out it's going to be Terrigan, right oh yeah he's, he's the brains of the operation of course he would well, he's been uh, well,
1: studying all those maps with Bronn for weeks on end.
0: <laughs> well, of course, of course. and Well, Joffrey wouldn't bloody know that. It would just be a case of send them back out to die. It's Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do f- I feel bad for Tyrion, though, because, as we see, it's another case of him getting his glory taken away from him.
1: Yeah, he doesn't end the episode in good shape, does he? No, uh, no. Gets his big, half-man, half-man but then yeah in the end it's tywin that wins the battle yeah but tyrion's job of holding off the soldiers was what bought them enough time mm. in order for that to happen um i i'm actually curious when did it dawn on you that it was tywin and the tyrells um
0: the moment that the door is kicked open that's that's it i i never would have guessed i I probably would have assumed that it was more Baratheon forces somehow, but yeah, no, it, it never would have dawned on me. I never thought that the episode would end with Tywin breaking down the door and saying, we won.
1: Well, that's something that gets explained in the next episode, but I can give you a little bit of an explainer here, which is that when Tywin went out to meet Rob in mm. the field, he came across the Tyrells who were without allies and uh, Littlefinger had already been to Harrenhal
0: yeah.
1: and said, look, the Tyrells have got no allies.
0: Mm,
1: mm, what do you think? And mm. that's where that arrangement has come from. Oh, well, there you go. So they've ridden in a little bit of deus sex machina and never hurt anyone, and, it, I mean, it hurt a lot of Baratheon soldiers, um, but in the end, I think it makes for a, a good place to finish the episode, and a good yeah. way to finish the episode as well.
0: Well, in, so in the case of Cyrell, like the enemy of the enemy is my friend. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, And there is a little bit of confusion sometimes for new viewers about where Stannis ends up and how he gets away, because the shot makes it look like he's being grabbed.
0: Yeah, it does. I I thought he was being arrested, presumably to be in a dungeon and then killed. Um, those
1: are his own men. Right. They're basically saying, look... It's a lost cause. Let's get out of here alive. And he's going, no, don't do it,
0: cowards.
1: <laughs> and uh, so yeah, that's that's that essentially. But um, where would
0: where would they go? All their ships have been destroyed.
1: Not all of them. Uh, only half. But um, mm, it's, a, it's it, an uphill it's
0: battle still.
1: Basically, a swim job back right. out to your ship. Uh, <laughs> But, yeah, it, the show doesn't cover that, but um, that's basically what happens. He's basically taken by his own men, and, yeah, so, yeah.
0: Fair enough. Um, Right, do you have any further notes about Blackwater? Um, Well, only that this was maybe the hardest winner decision I've had in this show so far. Okay, well, who is your loser of the week? Uh, sad to say it's Circe. She does have maybe the best, you know, acting appearance in the show this week, but yeah, she's she's awful in this.
1: Yeah, the way she behaves, you do have to separate Lena Headey from Cersei, so yeah, yeah. totally understandable loser decision. And your winner?
0: My winner is... I, I hate to say this, I'm still deciding now between the Hound and Tyrion.
1: Well, could I interfere? Go on. Just that Tyrion's had quite a lot of votes already and That's the Hound true. hasn't. Yeah. So we could have a new face.
0: And the Hound does have the best line of the episode, so I'm going to say the Hound.
1: Okay, yeah. Woo!
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, a new name on it. We've had a lot of new names this season with Egret and the Hound. And yeah. Yeah, so wonderful. Okay, so next week we've got a bit more content. For you, not only do we have our season finale, season 2, episode 10, entitled Valar Mugulis, we have also got our interview, the second part of our interview with Sam from Crywolf, and we, in that episode, will announce uh, a thing... For season three, we have an announcement to make about some stuff in season three. Indeed We're we also going to be watching the trailer for season three yeah. in that episode. Yeah, so we've got loads of good stuff coming for you. Um, and I should say as well that I have, there are 11 episodes of Game of Thrones that I consider to be uniquely special for the show and television, and we've had this is our second one. Baylor was the first, and we've had our second one, so there's nine episodes to go in my little special 11, I'm gonna call them. Um, and so yeah, got nine more of those special episodes to look forward to. <laughs>
0: oh, <I'm> so excited!
1: <laughs> All right, excellent, wonderful stuff. Um, we will be back next week, as I said, with Season 2, Episode 10 for Valar Morghulis. This has been Season 2, Episode 9, Blackwater. What an episode of TV. We hope it you did. all enjoyed it as much as we did. And, yeah, we'll see you soon.
0: And so we spoke, and so we spoke, that Lord of still me in. But now the rains, we pour us all, with no one there to hear. Yes, now the rains, we pour us all, and now the soul to hear.